Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We have a somewhat famous gospel passage today of a teacher of Israel coming to Jesus by night. And it always raises the question, why did he come by night? Typically, we interpret this as maybe an act of secrecy. He doesn't want his friends and colleagues to know that he is asking questions of Jesus, who is seen as very suspect. And that is likely. It doesn't seem very popular later on when Nicodemus defends Jesus in front of his friends and colleagues. But we don't know this for sure, that why, that's why Nicodemus came. It could be that he was simply looking for a quiet time and space. It was just as common then as now to seek deeper conversations in darkness, in quiet, when there's less hustle and bustle about. So we don't really know. And I urge us to hold Nicodemus with grace as we ponder him. And yet at the same time, we can be sure that this detail about Nicodemus coming in the darkness is important to John, who as a writer is always interested in communicating through the imagery of light and darkness. And darkness is not just a sign for John of separation from God, who is the light, but it's also quite obviously for him a sign of blindness, of less than perfect vision, an indicator of being unable to see clearly the very reality around. Darkness in this gospel forms its own sort of cage that humanity can be trapped in. And now Nicodemus is cast as a professor sort, an elite teacher with lots of knowledge of the law. But what is it, this gospel asks, that he can't see in the ways that he's looking at things? The French Reformed artist Henry Lingard has a painting or actually a drawing of Nicodemus and Jesus together. And in this drawing, Nicodemus is portrayed and created out of horizontal lines. And Jesus is created and portrayed out of vertical lines. So the light floods down from heaven to and through Jesus. He seems free to go up and down. Nicodemus, however, looks to be caged in his earthbound reality, his perspective. How might this image be true for us, too? The imminent frame is a term coined by the philosopher Charles Taylor and made understandable to me by Andrew Root in a book called The Pastor in a Secular Age. And you don't have to understand this fully, but just think of it this way. The imminent frame is a frame that is so close to us that we can't even see it. It defines our perceptions of our environment, our community, and ourselves. 
And in a secular age or society like North America is increasingly, it makes the action of the divine questionable and confusing. We struggle to see God's presence and purposes directly. It's kind of like, maybe, living with our sight only defined by horizontal lines, never thinking or seeing lines from above. Now, this may or may not resonate with you, but I still ask this question. How is or might be your sight constrained? Sometimes we feel it, this constraint of perspective, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we feel trapped as individuals and communities, and sometimes we may not feel it, but we still might be trapped in somehow, in the darkness of habitual perspectives. Now this can start to sound pretty grim. Cages, frames, horizontal lines. Where does our help come from? It's no accident that our psalm today is Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where is my help to come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is an image in this psalm that has given comfort to the faithful for so many generations. This image of lifting our eyes, changing our perspective a bit from what is before us, beyond our typical frame of vision. The psalmist is not looking for help in the next village or by the rock or behind the rock by the road. He gives us this image of looking further, lifting our eyes beyond the common sight line to the hills, the dwelling place of God, above and beyond our typical framework. Lift my eyes unto the hills. From where is my help to come? This is an essential part of the lesson offered by Jesus to Nicodemus. Many people want out of the trap of darkness, want to live in some ways with vertical lines shining through them, filled with the light of God. But Jesus says we cannot do this by our own striving through the perspectives we already have. We cannot actually see this way by our own human effort. As he puts it quite bluntly today, we cannot see the kingdom of God. We cannot see the reign of God without being given something from God, new life, and with it a newness of vision from above, from outside ourselves. Although the spirit moves where it will, that important reminder of God's freedom today, I will say the way this almost always seems to start is turning towards God, turning to the one who is above, although God is all around, but metaphorically above, with openness to receive the kind of life, renewal, that only God can give. We did not control our births, and we cannot control this kind of new birth or deep renewal. But we can turn our eyes and our hearts upward to God. 
to the one who can do more than we can ask or imagine. Now, in John especially, this is not just any vague looking up at God, although I would say something is better than nothing. I'm, I'm a big fan of that. If, you, if, that's, if that's where you're starting, that's fine. But Jesus issues a particular invitation here as the key to our renewal and new vision. Look at who I am and what I do through the crucifixion and the resurrection when I am lifted up. Jesus says today in paraphrase, remember Nicodemus when poisonous serpents were killing Israelites in the wilderness and Moses prayed to God that it might stop? God had Moses hoist a bronze serpent on a pole into the air so that whoever was in danger might look upon it and live. So, too, God has appointed a time where the one who ascends into the air, the one who has seen the heavenly things, the one who was born from above, will find himself hoisted upon a pole. And all those who see, who understand these words will look upon him and live. All because God would rather save this world than condemn it. It raises the question, this image of looking up to Jesus on the cross. When you look at Jesus raised up on the cross for all to see on that pole, what do you see? There are many ways of looking at it. I see the humility of God, God's willingness to go where no one thought God would or could, the suffering willingly endured for the healing of the world. And so I do see now the love of God for this world, reaching out to reveal the depths of forgiveness through the offering of peace, after we have done our worst to the word of God made flesh. I also see human patterns of violence and darkness and scapegoating exposed on the cross for the lies that they are. In the crucifixion, there is a parallel to the snake story. In the snake story, Looking upon the image of the thing that kills you brings healing. In the crucifixion, we look upon our own capacity to reject and deny God, that part of us which kills us, which killed Jesus, and it brings healing. Because we gaze upon that scary truth through the lens of the resurrection, knowing that Jesus endured all of this so that we might be reconciled to that God we are prone to reject, might know the truth about both ourselves and the crazy deep forgiving power of God, the depths of God's mercy and grace and light, and be made whole, be saved, healed. I don't see all those things every time I look at the cross, but that's what I've come to see. More plainly, through the history of the church, through the New Testament, 
which tries to answer again and again Nicodemus's question, how can these things be? We are invited to look at the mystery of the crucifixion of Jesus as a sign of God's forgiving love for the world and trust that this moment is indeed a cosmic key to both transformed vision and transformed life. Key to seeing ourselves and our lives differently and even seeing the reign of God in this life now and beyond. Jesus Christ, through the willing offering of his life, exemplified through his blood, through his death and resurrection, has begun a new age of human relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. And as this passage, this famous passage, reminds us so beautifully today, God wants to save, to heal, to renew. But because we are free creatures with free will, we still must choose to turn, to receive the transformative power and presence God wants to give us through Jesus. I was thinking about different examples of this kind of newness of life, and I have to admit that I was tempted for a while to preach about the surprising conversion of Kanye West. And it is true that people have said, the spirit blows where it will, no one understands it. But I decided I don't know enough about Kanye's spiritual life to talk about that with any conviction or truth. So I decided to share something a little bit closer to home. An example of newness of life that I experienced 17 years ago in the midst of my Christian journey, because I believe we have many such moments of newness of life, grace and help from above. So when I was a senior in high school and a freshman in college, I got really caught up in, trapped in the desire to be perfect about eating and exercising. I wanted to eat a perfectly balanced, nutritious diet, and I wanted to be a perfect exerciser with a perfect body. But the more I tried to be perfect about eating, the more enslaved I became. Now the irony is, of course, I wanted to be more perfect in order to be free to live my best life, like all the magazines seem to say. But the more I got caught up in this, the more I felt trapped. I felt more and more clouded by this darkness, these thoughts about calories that I couldn't seem to escape. I didn't like it. I kept asking God to help me. But I was really asking God to help me do better at the game I was playing with greater peace of mind. I was asking God to give me greater strength to do what I thought sincerely God wanted me to do, eat perfectly and exercise often. But it was only making me feel miserable and stuck, seemingly helpless to get out of this cycle. And in the end, my freedom, my rebirth, didn't come from trying harder and doing better. It came during spring break of my freshman year of college, sitting on the couch in my uncle's house in Los Angeles, 
reading a C.S. Lewis book called The Screwtape Letters. Through these words, in my searching, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, I was finally invited to shift my gaze entirely. Lift your eyes to the hills. Stop looking at all that stuff, God said. You made an idol of it. Focus on loving me and loving others instead. Remember the grace of the gospel, the grace of Jesus raised up. While we were yet sinners, we were loved. Christ died for us. I love you now already. So live in that grace. Go forth in love knowing that I have love for you and your body right now, as is. And it really was the beginning of a new life with food and with people who I could suddenly see clearly again. Like a new baby or toddler, I still had some growing to do, but everything had shifted. I saw the whole thing in a different way. I was freed from the power of obsessive thoughts that seemed undefeatable until I turned my eyes and heart truly toward God with openness and humility, not to God as a servant who would help me achieve the goals I created. At the end of the day, brothers and sisters, Lent is about turning, not tweaking or trying harder. The whole Christian life is about turning, not trying harder. Turning our eyes upward with trust. We cannot achieve Easter-style new life, eternal life, in 40 days, even the 40 blessed 40 days of Lent. But we can turn our gaze. We can trust. We are in charge of our eyes and our hearts. What are we looking to for salvation, for healing? Some theologians say that grace, the Christian life, is like floating in water. We cannot actually float in a vertical position like we stand although it is the position we are most inclined to try to make work if we are thrown into a body of water and we've never swum before. But to survive, to not sink, to be able to rest in the water, you must fully reorient. You must turn your eyes to the sky and extend your chin and expose your neck with great vulnerability. I've been trying to teach my children to float, and I'm reminded that you cannot imagine a more vulnerable position, actually. Arms out, neck and heart exposed. And you must focus not only your eyes, but your very chest, your heart, on reaching to the sky pressing it up through your ridge cage to unlock a physical power you may not know is possible. 
given already to you. Does this body, my body, actually float? It will. It does. If you reorient, if you look the right way, press your chest to the sky, and then relax, surrender, lift your heart to God, and then let your other limbs take a break. The power to float is given to us, not achieved. Just like new birth, renewed lives. Given to us, not achieved. Turn your eyes and your hearts upward.